This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. Hello, aviators. Welcome to the Flight Time series by Hangar Talk and Flight Training Magazine, where we bring you the exciting world of aviation. Each show, we will revisit a popular Hangar Talk interview for the flight training audience. I'm Jennifer Nahn, Senior Manager of Media Relations and Public Affairs at AOPA. This episode, we speak with Zoanne Harkelrode. Zoanne is a past winner of AOPA's Flight Training Experience Award for Best Flight Instructor in the Country. She worked at a busy military flying club in Colorado, training members of the military to become civilian pilots. AOPA's associate web editor, David Toulis, caught up with Zoanne after she won the award to discuss her love of night flying, how she flies safely in the mountains, and much more. Flight Time is brought to you by AOPA. Go to AOPA.org for more, and if you're not a member, make sure to push that join button while you're there. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. All right, David, take it away. All right, so via Skype, we're going to welcome Zoanne Harkelrode at the uh, Rocky Mountain Flight Training Center, and you have just uh, received one of our Flight Excellence Awards. Congratulations, Zoanne. Yes, thank you so much, David. Yes, that's quite exciting. It sure was. It sure was. And we're so glad that you're with us today via Skype. And what we're going to do for our podcast listeners, we're just going to talk a little bit about night flying because the time change is coming up here shortly on November 5th. And we're going to chat a little bit about what you might have for some of us uh, via some tips. Are you ready to go? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. Yeah, the night's one of the most delightful times to fly. Uh, Everything just seems to calm down, both, you know, the air, the air mass, the controllers, the traffic. That's just a gorgeous time to be out on most nights. It sure is. A lot of us really like to fly uh, close to sunset because it's beautiful for pictures, but also for the reasons you mentioned, because the air does calm down a little bit, uh, especially here on the East Coast. We have a lot of you know activity late in the day, sometimes, especially during the summertime. First of all, let's go ahead and um, tell us a little bit about why you do like to fly at night. Maybe we can start with that. Sure. I've pretty much flown in the West and the Southwest here, and of course, right now, being on the front range of the Rocky Mountains, um, you know, we get those prevailing westerlies that come over and crash down on us in mountain waves and lenticulars, those types of things. But, um, you know, as you mentioned, in 
And uh, so I love it. You know, as the sun comes down, those winds seem to cease. And, um, it's the standard pattern. I mean, you can have air masses that do kind of crazy things, but uh, yeah, it's just it's just a delightful time to fly. You can you can see traffic a lot further when people start to bring their lights on. Uh, and the aircraft lights, I'm speaking. They, they certainly the ground lights lighting is beautiful. It's just you know it seems like everything just calms down. Uh, controllers seem like there's less traffic, at least you know along here in the Front Range of Colorado, and you know the weather, the mountains, the winds. We can have them howling all day at 30, 40 knots and and then it just you know just after dinner just everything calms down it's beautiful now are you located near denver or fort collins or where are you and you know you're in colorado correct yeah i'm in colorado springs colorado springs down, uh, south of denver yes gotcha and how far away from denver are you in colorado springs the closest airport there for us would be about 30, 35 minutes away, the uh, Centennial Airfield, the home of Jefferson. Well, you must have some beautiful scenery out there on the Front Range, although you do, like you said, you do have to deal with some weather at times, uh, especially the wind. And, uh, of course, in the in the wintertime, is a whole new ball game. But think a little bit about your students and a little bit more about some night flying. What are some common gotchas that people should look out for, first of all? Well, it, most of the um, water masses here on, in the state of Colorado are, are reservoirs. And they, you know, we put reservoirs every place that we can, can uh, collect our own water for. And you know, a lot of times at night, and especially on moonless nights, uh, maybe a few cl- high clouds are out there, and you, you know, you'll see a small town on the other side of the lights. Um, uh, of course, where the, where the reservoirs are, there are no lights. And a lot of the mountains don't have much electricity or lights uh, around them, but you could perhaps see a town um, across the way. As you're, and as you're approaching uh, a lighted area and you see these uh, dark circles, you think that they're lovely reservoirs, and those lights start to disappear. You're probably not going over a reservoir. You're probably headed straight into a mountain if you can't continually see those lights on the other side. Now, of course, you're going to make it over the mountain, if you can continue to see those lights on the far side of, of your flight path. But that's probably the biggest thing that we have to get pilots used to is, you know, being able to see ahead in a different way at night. And one of those ways that we do that, of course, up and down the front range, we do that because we can, um, against the clouds, we can see the glow of the next city. And uh, you can really begin to see how the earth is curved because you'll first see the glow of, of the city. The, the lights from that city will be glowing on the clouds above. A key takeaway right at the beginning of this uh, little conversation was that if you see the lights and then they go out, then that means they go out. That means that there's something big in between you and the lights, right? Yes, exactly. So exactly. Then, and in your case out west. You're no longer going over a reservoir. Right. So it's a mountain. It's something dark that is yes. uh, ominous. Now, now we also yeah. now we have uh, some tools with us these days that help out in that situation where we didn't have that probably when you um, first started flying. I know I started in in right. the year two thousand with my lessons, and um, right. and even then we didn't have it. So we do have more situational awareness. But twinkly lights, you all so you always want to see some twinkly lights. That's the bottom line, right? If you start seeing, correct. It, that's. Awesome takeaway. Now, tell me a little bit about, you said something about the lights kind of shining off in the atmosphere a little bit, or the lightness in the atmosphere. Explain that a little bit more to me. Right, and then perhaps you have that out east, too, because you have so much moisture. We we don't have a lot of moisture, but when we have those high clouds over there, um, you know, the bright city lights, like from Denver and Boulder and, and of course, Colorado Springs and, and Pueblo along the Front Range and, and many of our um, western slope cities, too, is that... Um, 
the, the lights will reflect long before you get to the city. You can often see at night that haze and the lights from the big cities reflecting in the, in the far distance. And then as you fly around the curve of the earth or up and over the, the mountains, then you can actually see the, the lights shining from the ground. But, uh, but, you know, you're right, David, you mentioned about um, you know, our electronic flight bags and all of the, uh, the terrain avoidance um, options right. that we have uh, there. And that, that's marvelous. That's, that's been really, really helpful. But I also have to caution my pilots. They want to have their, their lights on their tablets and the instrument lighting in the aircraft. They want to have it up really bright so that they can see it. But if I could just get them to turn those lights inside down and you put your um, tablet on the lowest setting or the night vision setting so you can take out some of that white light. Yeah. You can see so much more so farther. So much I agree. farther. Well, because that's it's light it's like light pollution in the cockpit. That's a bad thing. That's a bad thing, yes. Exactly. And that's one of the first things you learn about when you're preparing for a night flight, which we'll get into in a second. But that's a good takeaway. Turn the volume down on your electronic flight bag if you use one. Right. That's a great tip. So now, uh, I hate to hopscotch around, but let's bookmark that for just a second, Zoanne, and let's think about pre- preparing for a night flight. And that, you know, because we just t- talked about it just a little bit, what do we need to do as pilots to prepare for a night flight and make sure that we're in the right zone mentally, but also, you know, maybe we know a little bit more about our airplane, where we can get to stuff, things like that. And you can touch on, on the lighting aspects as well. Sure. Well, and even before that, um, as I try to encourage all my pilots to come well-rested, well-hydrated, well-nourished. Um, and, you know, hydration is probably one of the biggest things at night because we're staring out, we're looking, and, um, you know, not only does it become uncomfortable if we're thirsty, but our eyes don't see as well if they're dry and, you know, wearing contacts, glasses, as I have for many years. You really, I really have to pay attention uh, to that. And, and I encourage, you know, um, even my, my young 20-something pilots uh, with their young eyes, you know, still stay well hydrated. You won't know until it's too late and you won't be able to have that good visual acuity. Uh, fun little story. We were um, flying, uh, three of us instructors and flying between uh, Colorado and, and in Arizona one evening and we're flying over New Mexico and I looked down and I said is that snow on the ground and my eyes had gotten so dry that I was just looking at um, the untended fields that were just gone fallow and it looked to me like there was snow and the, the other clouds were like no 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 oh my it, it's it's just grass wow and you brought up a good point because you fly out out west and there, the, the you know density altitude is a little bit higher. Your elevation, your base elevation is higher too. Yes. So being hydrated is even more important to folks in the front range and uh, doing some mountain flying. Right, right. And thanks, David. You led me to a great point there too. You know, our base, our elevation here at the at the Colorado Springs Airport is almost six thousand two hundred feet. Um, which, you know, my friends, when I, when I started flying in, air, in the deserts of Arizona there, field elevation was 1,000 feet, and we may, you know, fly our, our whole um, private pilot training class and, and never get up above 6,000 feet. So, right, a good point. Yeah. And you're, you're starting at that. We're starting at that. So, uh, you know, we probably naturally here have a few more red blood cells to take in um, as much oxygen as we can get out of, out of the atmosphere here too. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the, I think the recommendation is to, start wearing um, oxygen at nighttime when you're above 5,000 feet. And I think, you know, that's, that's really good information because that is. we have so much less oxygen available per volume of air. It's still the same 21%, but those molecules are spread out a little farther, and it's not like we can just take a big breath and scoop up more oxygen. Right. So we've that's... got to get it down to the cellular level. 
And um, key takeaway, absolutely. If you have a chance to, you know, to come out to Colorado Springs, the Peterson Air Force Base here does have one of the altitude chambers that you can um, sign up to go through, and it, it's amazing, you know, what happens um, just even to your color vision at night without the oxygen in, in the chamber flights. You, you know, everything is just a series of black and whites, but you put on the oxygen. Um, even, you know, at, at uh, 6,000 feet from the get-go, from, from taking off here, and the colors and everything just come alive um, on your charts. Your handwriting gets, um, uh, for at least for me, got much more legible. Wow, um, that is bizarre. That definitely is so, thinking more clear. No <laughs> kidding. That is something that I really wouldn't have thought about. So you got a chance to experience the oxygen chamber and the pressure chamber. Yes. And So what was it like? Take us through that real quick on a, on a little sidebar. Sure, sure. Um, the profile for us was that we um, um, we braised 100% oxygen for um, a period, and I don't recall the, the amount of time it was. And as they were, you know, pressurizing or depressurizing the chamber, taking us up to only 25,000 feet, and then they had us take off our masks and um, answer an, a number of questions and do some calculations. And then, you know, there were simple things like, you know, what's your name and address, and um, what you had for dinner, and where you went to school, and things like that, and mm-hmm. some calculations that you might use. Um, and you know, everyone's symptoms of hypoxia are, are very personal and, uh, and very unique to them. So, you know, we had some people that, you know, stayed in four or five minutes and didn't need oxygen. And then we had some folks that, you know, took it off and just started acting silly and flopping around. And personally, I just got to the point where I didn't care, but I knew I didn't care. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so they, yeah, um, I was sitting in chair number seven and they hollered at me and number seven, are you feeling symptoms of hypoxia? And I would shake my head. I didn't speak and answer, but I shook my head. Okay. Number seven, uh, start the um, emergency flow of oxygen, put all three switches forward. And so I'm going like, yeah, okay. And I, I knew that they were telling me to do that. I knew I was supposed to be that yet. I still put the switches up one switch at a time. Okay. Number seven, put those um, switches all up together and attach your mask. Well, as soon as I got all three switches up, even though the mask was hanging down, well, maybe uh, two or three inches in, in front of me, I could begin to get that 100% oxygen coming in the mask, put it up, and I was like, yeah, I was really stupid there. Well, that is amazing. <laughs> yeah, but it was good to know that, right? And so now I share with, with pilots, whether it's a night flight or a higher altitude flight, a mountain flight, we do a lot of mountain checkouts up here. Um, I let them know my personal symptoms of hypoxia. Is I begin to not care about things. So right. if you catch me not caring, you know that I'm in trouble at that point. <laughs> well, that's a key takeaway. That for a key takeaway from that flight was your own personal level that you just mentioned, right? And also, right. just in general, the like you said the 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 uh, colors were black and white, and they came alive when you had uh, more oxygen. Right, but- and then that was the the next part that they did to for us is that they dimmed the cabin the uh, chamber lights, and they put these literally a color wheel in front of us. Um, you know, that you might see at, at, at any store when you're trying to you know, match different colors of your clothes. They put those color wheels in front of you. Then we took off our masks. And again, you know, with the low lighting, the, um, the colors were all just, for me, it was just various colors of gray. And then um, we put our masks back on. They started the flow of oxygen for us. And, they, you know, the color wheel just came alive. But yet they had not changed the color of the lighting in the altitude chamber. So it's just our bodies reacting in a different way. And so it went from a black, white, and gray to basically uh, lit up like a Christmas tree the normal way. Yes, exactly. And I think that may be why some of my pilots sometimes will, will be turning up the contrast and brightness on their, on their screens hmm. um, when we're flying along, that they may you know, be getting some, some hypoxic symptoms, even though we typically will do our training flights oh, at 9,500 to maybe 10,500 for our night flight training flights out here. Well, that's something you just touched on that is really kind of cool. If you find yourself 
uh, turning up the intensity level of your uh, mm-hmm. yeah of your EFB or even maybe even a panel panel lights. That might be fir- sure. a first clue for folks to say, wait a minute. It's nighttime. I need some oxygen. I need to, you know, lower my if if you have the opportunity, lower your altitude, um, or if you have oxygen, yes. get oxygen going. Yes. Wow. Cut that flight short and go back and get you know get a tank of oxygen. It's it's pretty cheap. So, yeah. I mean, it even is. if it's you know what forty, sixty, eighty bucks to fill a tank, that's a whole bunch cheaper than bending up something. Yeah, that's a, that's interesting. Well, um, think about also some of your um, some of your students. You've got a whole gamut of uh, students from folks who are just learning how to fly to other folks who probably have it. You know, are looking for an advanced rating. What about uh, how, and you know someone that wants to go uh, and, and start their flight instruction? What would you tell them about their first night flight before they attempted it? What would you coach them into doing? What are some of the first steps? Sure. Um, one of the things that I, I think is kind of fun and entertaining is to, you know, turn on the lights in, in your house and then, uh, you know, in, in nighttime, you know, after dinner or, you know, getting ready for the, to turn in for the evening and then turn them off and see how long it takes you before you can recognize things around the rooms around your home. Yeah, I'm, I'm no longer 20 something or 30 something. I'm not even 40 something. I'm much past that. <laughs> so <laughs> something that, that I want to, you know, to just to try to keep uh, assessing the health of, of my eyes and my vision. And uh-huh. I wear contacts, so of course I go to the uh, ophthalmologist every year. But, you know, how long does that night adaptation really take? And you, know, you can find around your house, it doesn't take that long, you know, 10, 15 seconds, and you start, but you're familiar with that area. Um, now, you know, if you go, you know, to your neighbor's house, you wouldn't, you know, would you be able to do the same thing? But, but going, you know, out, uh, in our regular training airport areas, um, which you're probably pretty familiar with when you first, you know, um, our night flights usually happen in stage two. So the pilot has anywhere from 10 to 20 hours of experience, but it's all pretty much in the local area. So now you go out at night and, you know, you do those things that the FAA tells us to avoid bright white lights for 30 minutes before the flight. And you, you know, you continually you know, get that night adaptation as you're taxiing out and you know, slowly looking and deliberately seeing the things that are around familiar. But for the pilot, that first time taking off, they tend to go quiet and have just that wonderful ah moment. And then they realize they have to fly the airplane. <laughs> yeah. I almost always will take that first takeoff, bring it around for a stop and go landing, and then let them have the second one. So the first time they can get that those oohs and ahs out and kind of get their bearings and look for familiar things. I try to point those familiar things out to them as they go and what they look like at night. We have Shriver Air Force Station about eight miles to the east of us, and that's a prominent point for entry and exit um, to the east from Colorado Springs. Well, it looks completely different at night. It is nicely lit up and it's a perfectly nice square, but even sometimes just to find that, it you know looks so much farther away when they are first taking off um, of the airfield here. So let them get those oohs and ahs in while the instructor you know, maintains the aircraft control and brings it around. It also helps me to stay current with, with my night takeoffs and landings. Then they can take over the airplane after that uh, stopping on the runway and, and, and taking off again. And they've had a chance to do some oohs and ahs, and now we can get down to business. So I would, I would encourage them to look for the things that uh, you know are supposed to be there, and then what do they really look like. And, um, you know, just even in the traffic pattern, pointing out where the um, runway we're using, for the most part, the, the Cessnas, where the strut will run about halfway down the runway lights. 
mm-hmm. uh, the runway will you know, bisect the strut. You know, right. Look for that also because they tend to kind of creep up close to the things that they're unfamiliar with. They want to get closer and make sure that that's it at, at nighttime, but still use those same references that they use during the day at the night. Um, you know, we have uh, some antennas and lights on the top of Pikes Peak. The lights on top of Pikes Peak can be really hard to see if when you're just staring at it from, you know, 15, 20 miles, 20, 30 miles away. Um, the lights on top of Cheyenne Mountain um, are an array of red and white lights. So those, as, as the grouping of them as the array, it's much easier to see. So I'll have the pilots, you know, focus on that and then look for Pikes Peak. But it's not until they see, till they begin to, uh, understand how to look off center, not just stare right where they know it should be, look a little bit to the side where they actually can can pop up and see that light um, on top of Pikes Peak. So that's a couple of key takeaways that you just uh, went over. One that just struck, struck my mind is use that strut on a typical training Cessna and the runway edge lights there, uh, and it should still be in the same basic relationship as if it was in the daytime. Sure, exactly. Uh, that way you know you're in, you know, basically you're the proper distance away from the runway when you're starting your pattern work. Then also you touched on this several times uh, talking about Pikes Peak and the local um, Air Force Base, but basically know your environment and the visual references and that looks quite different at night versus the daytime. Yes, and then when we do night cross countries to places we've never been, you know, I think the best key there is to get yourself um, a low altitude and route chart. Okay. And fly those routes. Yes, um, those actually tell you the safe altitudes. For the instrument pilots, they're minimum in route altitude. So if you're on the, on those airways or Q routes, you know, with the with our RNAV routes, they will keep you from hitting things, and and that's what it's all about. So that's an extra margin of safety. Basically, you're saying look at those airways and look at what the minimum recommended altitude is and adhere to that. Yes. That's a cool takeaway. I would have never thought of that. Well, and you know, a lot of us use the maximum elevation figures um, on our sectional charts, and, and the low-altitude route in route charts have those maximum elevation figures also. But in our area, right over the airport, courtesy of Pikes Peak, it's over 16,000. Oh, man. So that would be a little bit impractical. Yeah, it would be us. hard to do in a typical 172. Yeah. Um, that's It'd interesting. Probably take all of our timing team. Right. Well, now, um, so those are some great tips. Now, uh, we didn't get into illusions and things like that, but uh, we did a little bit about the twinkly lights um, near a reservoir, and then if something came in between, we, we would assume that that was a mountain or something, a, a big block of, of uh, land that we don't want to hit. But think about the illusions, and give me just one common uh, illusion that, um, that pilots will go up against at night and maybe one way to combat that. Sure. Um, I was on the... An instrument flight with a pilot and we were coming I was we were actually in instrument conditions um, in one of the training aircraft and uh, she said to me she goes oh I have the runway in sight turn 30 degrees to the right and I'm like but my needles are centered and I looked up and she was actually looking at an interstate and was about to have us line up with the interstate uh, okay so, all right so, yes yeah, this was a, a double eye applicant so it's, it's great to make these mistakes and learn from them but you know with the right people in them and I and I hadn't actually turned off the radio, so it didn't center up on its own. <laughs> oh, so now, so she was she. So the interstate was lit up as if it were a runway, basically, is what it sounds like. Yes. Gotcha. Yes. Now that goes back to knowing, but that goes back to knowing your environment too. But were y'all on a? Sure. I think were y'all on a cross country, or is that local, or do you even remember? No, we were all on a cross country. I yeah. gotcha. So it might have been new to both of y'all. So now check and verify, and if something's not logical. There must be a reason why, right? Right. 
Gotcha. Yeah. That, that reminded me of, of another time when um, I was flying between some cloud layers, and uh, this was a, a VFR flight, and we knew that, uh, and, and this was actually in Arizona, so we knew that, you know, as we went further on that, that uh, we were going to lose those clouds, um, at least so that we could land and so forth. But um, you do, you know, the clouds don't always um, level up with the horizon. So you can uh-huh. get some, some lean, leans, if you will, even if, as a VFR pilot, um, not even being in the clouds, just being between a couple of layers. And um, those darn clouds, just, they just want to make you level, level with yeah. their um, time and, and, uh, and, and angle. But now you have, to, you have to really trust those instruments. That attitude indicator is right. And, you know, certainly uh, um, you know, your, your uh, turn coordinator, if you're not, you're not turning, if that's not turning, it's not giving you any, any rate of turn. And, and uh, Rod Machado used to you know, talk about, um, you know, putting uh, a um, Pope soap on a rope, if you will, or, you know, putting some type uh, yeah, of plumb bob yeah. in, in the airplane. <laughs> Yes. That way you can. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and uh, helicopter pilots have a little piece of uh, string that's in front yeah, of the string. And, yeah, yeah. And then I guess uh, glider pilots use the same kind of technology. So, Plum. yeah, soap on a rope or something like that dangling from the uh, from I don't know where you would put it on a, in a 172. But uh, I guess you can hook it from the I don't know if you have a some kind of visor. But that's a good point that you bring up, right. which is, hey, look at your instruments, trust your instruments. And the and the horizon it doesn't always equate to the horizon of of the clouds. The clouds could could start yes. at a higher altitude, look like a solid deck, but actually be coming down lower. Yes, I've actually yes. I've seen that in the daytime quite a few times actually. <laughs> yes, yes. Again, you know, trying to equate what you've learned, you know, in the daytime and how that might look and feel and and um, you know understand it for for night flying. We have um, a condition here where a lot of times the uh, air masses will move up from the um, east or the southeast and pick up some moisture off the Arkansas River, and then we'll get that upslope condition where we'll pack right up against the Front Range Mountains. And you know, to watch out for that, it, it's just like it says in, in the airplane flying handbook. You know, the lights start to get a little fuzzy, the lighting gets fuzzy, rather looks like um, someone's you know starting to, to uh, spray paint moisture across your windshield, and you're like, oh, you know, we might be getting into to uh, some areas of, of lower visibility and uh, out here for us in the west you know if, if we don't have 50 to 100 miles visibility we're just sure that it's ifr when it gets down to you know, 12 or 20 but, mm-hmm. you know i understand from flying back um east on myself that it you know, takes some getting used to to fly at, at five three miles visibility and five miles visibility right right that's a real yeah. good point and uh, actually thinking about precipitation at night it might be a little bit harder to see that. And I, can, I guess that's where we're going with that. It might be harder yeah. to see the, the, you know, the start of something like that. And then that could be a real bad situation if it's uh, wintertime or if the temperatures are low and you start to get some precipitation. And we're in a, you know, an, an aircraft that's not certified for flight in the known icing conditions. Right. That could really be a gotcha. It gets downright dangerous right, very quickly, yes. Right. Well, well, um, let's think. We'll, we'll wrap it up pretty soon, Zoanne, because I know you have a very, very busy schedule. But think about um, uh, back to the first part of our conversation, where you're telling me a little bit about some of your favorite reasons to fly at night. Um, is there any favorite place that you've been to at night? Ah, uh, <laughs> I, mean, I just, I just enjoy being out at night um, all the time. But um, in you know, my parents live across Kansas in Missouri, and so. Uh-huh. I have to say, you know, going into Kansas City is just a delightful time at night. Um, you know, you go across Kansas and, you know, there, there's you know, all the small airports and it, it's fun to, you know, turn on the lights as I fly across at night, turn on, you know, it have, helps know 
you know, where I am as well to, to turn up the, the runway lights using uh, the common traffic advisory frequency. You know, and, but then all of a sudden you, you get across the river there, uh, across the Missouri River, and you're into to the Kansas City area, and it's like you um, came back to home. So I'd have to say Kansas City is, is one of the most delightful places to fly into at night, whether it's the international airport out, out north or the airport downtown right along the river and right next to, to town. Um, Las Vegas, we were, I was just there for NBAA. That's, of course, an, a magical place to, to land at night. It's, it's quite busy now, but uh, you see a lot of, of the casinos and, and all those bright lights. That, that's a wonderful place to, to fly at night. Yeah, it is. I was just in Kansas City over the weekend for a little NASCAR race. And, um, oh, I, yes. Yeah, I know where the, um, where the big airport is. I did notice that there are quite a few airports in that area, but that kind of makes sense because we have a lot of aviation in Kansas, not just in, you know, basically right. in Kansas City, but elsewhere and um but that is interesting so is kansas pretty darn flat for most of the way a little bit of rolling um, hills well, maybe it's pretty much straight downhill for us you know from from six thousand feet to, <laughs> right. um, to, to a thousand feet or whatever right 800 and you know depends on which airport you land at yes so if the so if the conditions are right you can probably see pretty darn far if you're in the uh, kansas in missouri kansas area right you can see the lights from kansas city about a, about an hour away you can begin to wow. see the lights from kansas city and know that you're that's cool stuff you know, you're headed to your destination so it's cool stuff yeah. i like it well, you have been so helpful to us, Oan. We really appreciate your time. Now, folks are listening to us on the podcast, and they want to get in touch with you. Say they live in your area. Um, would you mind telling folks how they could find you guys and, and maybe do a little flying with you? Sure, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, too, David, for the opportunity to do the podcast. This has just been a real delight. But um, officially, we're called the Rocky Mountain Flight Training Center. RockyMountainFlight.com is, is our website. Um, we're here at the Peterson Air Force Base, so we're more informally known as the Peterson Aero Club. And our phone number here, um, if you want to you know, talk to our ops clerk, Megan, she's really the, the gateway. She's um, here Monday through Friday, except on Wednesdays from 8 until 3. She's really you know, the one to, to get you all set up to come in here. Um, it is, we are on an active military base, so you do have to have um, a way to get here, but we can usually arrange um, a one-time tour or you know, chance to fly with us uh, if you don't have access to the, the military base. And of course, then there's ways to, to, to join up and, and uh, meet with us. But all, we also have here at Colorado Springs, we're very fortunate. There's a number of other wonderful flight schools on the field and, and uh, even at the, a couple of the private airports and, and the non-towered airports around too from uh, Peak Aviation and, and Springs Aviation out at the Meadow Lake Airport. So we've got quite an active um, flight training community out here and just great places to to fly and to get some mountain checkouts. But uh, anyway, Megan's number uh, for us is uh, 719-556-4310. And if you, if you can't get on base, Megan will help you with that or help you point you to one of the other schools in the area. Uh, again, but that's uh, 719-556-4310. And that information is all on our website at RockyMountainFlight.com. RockyMountainFlight.com. And Zoanne Harkle-Road, congratulations on your uh, award. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, thank you for giving us some night flying tips and for participating in Hangar Talk. We'll sign off, and thanks again. Okay. All right. You're welcome.